Disclaimer. This episode contains graphic and explicit content that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. For a couple months now, we have been on a journey to discover what had occurred Easter weekend 44 years ago in Pont St. Charles, Montreal. Some things we know is that some friends decided to hang out at their local pizzeria, a girl painted Easter eggs with her sister, and all seemed relatively typical in terms of what teenagers might do during a break from school and what families are doing approaching a holiday. During the weekend, the same girl who painted with her sister and met her friends went missing. Her name was Shannon Pryor and she was 16 years old. She went missing March 19, 1975 in Pointe St. Charles, Montreal. Three days later, on April 1st, across the St. Lawrence River in a small town called Lingale, Shannon was found murdered. Shannon was discovered by a beekeeper in his field. In terms of her family, they were heavily involved in finding out what had happened to Shannon and who killed her. We are sharing this information with you in order to answer one question. A question that everyone's wondering, especially her family. Who killed Shannon Pryor? Shannon went missing after leaving to meet up with her friends at Marina's Pizzeria, which was a couple blocks away from her house. To recap her day, she had spent the day with her mom Yvonne and her sister Mary painting Easter eggs and had a brief meeting with her reverend at home. The day leading up to her disappearance was a day where nothing really out of the ordinary happened. Later that day, she had plans to meet up at the pizzeria and set out on her own to do so. It wasn't far and she had denied her friend's offer of walking her there. Shannon didn't care much for walking alone to the pizzeria as she'd done it many times and it wasn't a far walk. That was the last time her family saw her. The death of Sharon impacted her mother, Yvonne Pryor, deeply. When Mrs. Pryor was asked to identify Sharon's body, she simply couldn't do it. She said that she knew she couldn't go down to see her, that she didn't want to see her daughter like that. Mrs. Pryor's brother was sent to identify the body in her stead. We found some heartbreaking pieces of information in an interview with Mrs. Pryor done in 2012, taped. I was 37 years old when this happened to my daughter. You can count. I'm 74 now. Other families with missing children, sometimes they'll ask me why I don't just let it go. I even had a lady say, you have other children, but each of your children is special. All children are special. In an effort to help with the investigation of Sharon's murder case, Mrs. Pryor has put out a copy of Sharon's diary. Here it is. The heading reads, Easter weekend, Saturday, March 29th, 1975. Basically, Sharon spends a good part of the day painting Easter eggs and simply enjoying time with her family. What we're concerned about is the time between 6pm and 7pm. Here I'm reading a snippet of Sharon's diary. My girlfriend came to the house. She lives on the same block. I've known her since I was 5 years old. Although we have been friends for a long time, my girlfriend didn't hang around with my group of friends. I told her I was getting ready to go to Marina's Pizzeria. Sharon goes on to write, Marina's Pizzeria is on the corner of Wellington and Ash Avenue. A lot of my friends hang out there. It's sort of a meeting place. We have a soft drink and talk about everything. Boys to the latest music. This is the point where she stops writing and leaves for Marina's Pizzeria. The last time she would be seen by her mom and her family. (laughs) 
come close to finding Sharon's cold-hearted murderer and harasser, we arranged meetups with a number of people in her life, people that knew of her or people she had interacted with casually at some point in her life, even if it was not regularly. The purpose of conducting an interview in a murder or investigative case is to gather evidence that can be utilized to prosecute those involved in the crime. It is what defines the lines between having a suspect and finding the criminal. Our main goal behind this interview wasn't to conduct such a major task, but to at least get a glimpse of Sharon's vivid and amiable personality and the community's perspective on her. To answer the question, who was against her so much to have committed such a cruel atrocity within the legal parameters of our society and justice system? After a few calls and connections with the help of Yvonne, Sharon's mother, we were able to arrange a meeting with four people whom she wasn't close with but that she knew of who volunteered to be a part of bringing justice to her plate. First, Frank Daly, the manager of Marina's Pizzeria, a 35-year-old resident of Quebec for over 20 years. Daly come to what we call a good connection between two strangers. I'm aware you knew Sharon for a long time. How did you meet? I've been living in the point all my life and I knew the girl quite well. She was like a daughter, a very smart girl. I hear you say daughter. Why? Was she a regular customer? How often did she come? She visited the restaurant quite often with her friends. We get a lot of school kids in here. Most restaurants don't want the kids because they make a lot of noise and don't spend a lot of money. But the owner and I talked it over and decided we don't mind having the kids here. We don't make a million off them, but we don't do too badly either. And the kids, Sharon was very sweet. She would always come with a smile, always made your day, reminded me of my own daughter, kind and considerate. Tell me about the people she came with, if you remember, of course. How were they together? Sometimes it sounded like a barnyard, but they didn't behave too badly because there were boys and girls here together. They came here to yak. They still do, walk from school or even just on weekends. But the girls never walk alone. They come in groups. It is a fixed and tight neighborhood, so everyone knows each other. But you never know, right? Next on the list was Debbie Bray, a kind and generous volunteer who offered to look for Sharon. Our goal for interviewing Bray was to get a sense of the people in the area and statistics of crime. Bray was just a person who knew Sharon from the Boys and Girls Club. She would often see her around the neighborhood at the point of Sharon and Wellington Street when she lived there at the time. After a thorough discussion, it became quite crystal that there was a great number of people affected by the mur murder of Sharon, just from a bystanding viewpoint. It has been 44 years now since the passing of Sharon, and it still feels like it was yesterday. I remember walking around with other volunteers and friends looking for her after she went missing, and it still affects me to this day on how I felt at the time of hoping to find her. It was such a tragedy to find out that she was murdered. To this day, I hope and pray that justice will be done to all that was involved in her murder. To the prior family, my prayers are with you. After a discussion, it became quite apparent that Sharon's murder was really a tragic one, one that brought agony and grief to the neighborhood, one that put the face of evil in action.
headed to a neighborhood hangout spot for a soft drink with some friends. 16-year-old Sharon Pryor of Montreal, Quebec, been missing on Easter weekend, March 29, 1975, until her body was found three days later in a ditch where she was raped and beaten. With the goal of getting to know Sharon's personality, her friends, her choices, the area she lived in, people's perceptions of her, both whom she did or did not interact with, and finding the ruthless murderer who committed the gruesome and vicious drop, we set our course on the third interviewee on a hunt for more detail. Last on our list was Brian Nichols, a part-time employee at the Boys and Girls Club at the time. A club established with the intention of providing a safe, supportive place where children and youth can thrive and experience new opportunities, overcome barriers, build positive relationships, and develop confidence and skills for life. After the interview, Nicole seemed really scarred from the tragic catastrophe that had occurred in the community. I think anyone who spent any time at the Boys and Girls Club must surely remember. Most of all, I remember Sharon's infectious smile so many years ago, and how those days changed the point. I'm aware Sharon came to the club since she was six. Did you know her back then too? Yes, I knew her quite well, because of her compassionate personality. She was a sympathetic, bright, and a dynamic child. I will always remember Sharon and that beautiful smile as she grew up. She was truly a gift in our community. It's a shame what happened to her. All in all, from the interviews, we came to the conclusion that Sharon was well-known in the community for her bright and welcoming personality and attitude. But that doesn't answer the question. So how did things escalate down to the atrocious criminal who was so insensitive and charitable and unsympathetic to kill a gracious, gullible girl? So now let's dive deeper into the details of the crime scene. Sharon was raped, beaten, and had died of asphyxiation. According to a doctor, she had been dead for at least 20 hours when she was found. The asphyxiation was caused by blood in her lungs as she probably hemorrhaged internally when her assailant had beaten her. The autopsy showed that Sharon had several bruises on her face, two fractures on her jaw, and a broken nose. However, the police believe Sharon was still alive when her body was dumped. The interesting part is that there was no mud on her shoes when she was found. This could mean that she was carried out of the car and put on the ground. She never walked through the snow in that field. When detectives and authorities scoured the area in which the body was found, they found a man's shirt and a footprint nearby. The size of the footprint was eight and a half in men's, and the depth of the footprint in the snow was measured. The investigators came to the conclusion that the assailant would be around 90 kilograms or 200 pounds. The shirt they found was a size 17 collar with 34-inch sleeves, which indicate that the assailant was around 6 feet or 2 meters tall. In July 2004, police received an anonymous tip and searched a garage behind an apartment hoping to recover DNA related to the case. After the search, three DNA samples were found, but they proved negative for Sharon. Why would somebody give a tip to the police department if it did not advance the investigation any further? One plausible answer is that the DNA could have belonged to the assailant, or assailants because three samples are found. Now let's talk about the suspects for the case. 
To begin, whoever finds the body first is always a suspect. As previously stated, the beekeeper was the one who found her corpse. We tracked the beekeeper down, and they agreed to meet with us at McDonald's to talk about the case. We talked about the case, and he answered any questions that he was able to remember. He decided that he wanted to stay anonymous. Would you take us to where you had discovered Sharon's body? Of course. The place wasn't far from the McDonald's we met at, just a couple of blocks away. The area was different from before. The woods were gone. The place where the man had once kept his bees was now vacant. He took us straight to the spot. We've seen photos from newspaper clippings and maps about the route Sharon had taken that night. It was incredibly accurate. We were surprised at how he was able to remember all of this. After all, several years have passed since then. What I saw that day really affected me. That evening, I discovered that the locks were undone, so I walked over to check out the muddy field. I can't get the image of her body out of my mind. Even now, I can still remember the details. After talking with the beekeeper, we got a sense of what really went down and just how much everyone was affected by this case. We've ruled out the beekeeper as a suspect because it wasn't suspicious for him to find the body, as the field belonged to him. Why wouldn't he go check out his own field when he discovered that the locks were undone? So we and the police ruled out the beekeeper as a suspect. Let's move on to the next suspect, the boyfriend. Sharon's boyfriend at the time was a boy named John McAleer. Some reports said that Sharon was with John that day. What happened when Sharon and John were together? The reports didn't say much about him, and we weren't able to get a hold of him. However, we did manage to get a hold of Linda Weppert, the sister of Alfie Weppert, who was the best friend of John. When Sarah was gone for a long time, Yvonne made calls to friends and family to inquire about Sarah's whereabouts, and Linda's family was one of them. So Sharon's mother called your house? Yeah, I remember her mom calling my house looking for Sharon, but everyone thought that she was supposed to be with John. John? As in John McAleer, Sharon's boyfriend? Yeah, John had a hockey game that day and everyone thought that Sharon was at the game watching him play. Every Saturday, Alfie would host a party after my parents had gone out and I remember because I had to help clean up after. Sharon and John always came, but on the night of the game, John came alone afterwards. So Sharon wasn't with him then? No, she wasn't. We asked John if he had seen Sharon because her mother had sounded pretty worried over the phone. He said that he didn't know and that he didn't see her at the game. He thought she had been with her friends at Marina's Pizzeria. This is a memory that I know very well. My heart goes out to her family. She will always be remembered for a kind and loving character. She was truly loved by all who knew her. Hmm, so everyone at the pizzeria thought she didn't arrive because she was with John. And John thought that she was with everyone at the pizzeria. Clearly, no one knew where she was after she left the house. So it couldn't be John like we had speculated earlier because he had a hockey game. If he were to miss the game, I'm sure the coach or someone on his team would notice and say something. John McAleer had an alibi.
were stumped. If it isn't anyone who was associated with Sharon, then who else could it be? We decided to dig deeper, and here's what we found. Mike French, a gang member of the gang Satan's Choice. You may be wondering why we connected Mike French to this case. Well, here's a letter sent to the owner of a website inquiring about Sharon's case from Yvonne Pryor. Mike French was the number one suspect in the attack on Cheryl Roy, just before my daughter Sharon was abducted. He was picked up by the detectives, questioned, and put in a lineup. But Cheryl could not positively identify him, so they had to let him go and moved on to other suspects. There are stories circulating about how Mike French had boasted on killing my daughter. I do know that Mike French was murdered sometime in the mid-80s. His body was found at an Indian reservation on the south shore of Montreal. In 2004, when our detectives opened my daughter's case on a lead which turned out to be a false lead, they decided to look into the Mike French case again, as this time DNA could be checked. Although Mike French was murdered, they still had his DNA at the lab. In the end, the results were inconclusive. As you may have noticed, a new character, Cheryl Roy, is brought up. Both Cheryl Roy and Mike French are more relevant to Sharon's case than one might think. Mike French, as previously mentioned, was the number one suspect in the assault of a woman, Cheryl Roy. Cheryl was assaulted on the same day of Sharon's disappearance, and her assaulter fled the scene at around 7pm. The route this assaulter took in fleeing was likely the same one Sharon took when she was heading to Marina's Pizzeria. Cheryl, 5 feet and 8 inches tall, described the attacker as around 4 inches taller than herself, and she estimated him to be around 200 pounds. These details are critical to the investigation, considering the fact that they match the measurements of the man's shirt left where Sharon's body was found, as well as the police's estimate of the man's weight. Cheryl couldn't see the man's face as he held her head back. I had begged him to take my purse, but he said, I don't want your purse. I want you. I love you. That's Cheryl talking, going over the details of the assault. Now one may think that someone fleeing the scene wouldn't bother to stop to assault or go to the lengths of murdering another girl he sees on his way. We've talked to Greg McCrary, a well-known former special agent, about this. You would think no, but when these guys are in the hunting mindset, they're good to go. So to speak, that could very well be the guy. Alright, we're not done with this story yet, but let's fast forward a few years to 1981, where on March 20th, another girl, this time a 12-year-old, disappeared blocks away from where Sharon went missing. Her name was Tammy Leakey, and she had been visiting her grandmother in the point. The location where her body was discovered was only 25 minutes away from where Sharon's body was found. Her body had been strangled, stabbed, and raped. Alarms are probably going off in your head right now, as the three cases involving Sharon, Cheryl, and Tammy seem all too closely connected. In fact, a lot of things fall into place when the three cases all link back to one single attacker. 
We had already talked about Cheryl's estimates of the attacker's appearance being similar to the one the police had deduced. Moreover, it can be reasoned that this attacker decided to target a younger girl after finding it hard to control Cheryl and Sharon. All in all, have we answered the question, who killed Shannon Pryor? In a way, yes and no. We don't have any conclusive evidence or bulletproof answer, but we do have a most likely conclusion. Shannon was not the only girl to get attacked in Montreal at the time, nor the only girl in her neighborhood. Shannon Pryor, Cheryl Lloyd, and Tammy Leakey's attacks all have similarities that are too hard to ignore, in the sense of the way they disappeared, their ages, and area, to name a few. This leads us to believe that they were all attacked by the same person. It could be Mike French. But since the DNA evidence was inconclusive and the police dropped him as a suspect, there's some speculation. It probably is him, since most points in his direction, but there's no definitive proof and it's hard to pinpoint what the truth about Mike French really is. For now, we answer the question by stating that the person who killed Shannon Pryor was the same person that attacked Cheryl Roy and Tammy Leakey.